The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Well, for those of you who are new or who have been away, we are in the middle of a a series that we started actually in 2014 called Covenant People. We're going to continue today in the book of 2 Kings, but before we get to that, I thought I would ask you a question. Has anyone in the room ever lived in a group home or like a shared flat that had many different uh, people living? And you don't have to raise your hands, but, but those of you who've lived maybe in a, a fraternity house back in America, or maybe you've lived in a barracks or something, or an apartment with many different people, I've heard funny stories from some of you about your group living situations during university. Well, I'd like to share with you a a story about my uh, first semester of ever living abroad. I lived in England in 2003 uh, in in Birmingham, and uh, I moved into an apartment with six other people I had never met before. In fact, I showed up at the university, you know, from America, and I was so optimistic and excited about studying abroad, and I got my paperwork and my key, and they said, it's over there, and I walked over there, and next thing I know, uh, I'm walking into uh, my apartment for the first time. It felt very exciting. Those of you who've moved to a new country will know what I'm talking about. Just this feeling of, wow, you know, this is really it. I'm really in the greatest year of my life. I'm living abroad, a dream I've always had. And I opened the door, and I'm not kidding you that I open the door to the apartment, and what I hear when I open the door is a stream of curse words uh, coming out of one of the bedrooms that I will not repeat in the church, Uh, but screaming coming from one of the bedrooms in the apartment had a long hallway, and there were bedrooms on each side, and as I open the door with my backpack and my suitcase and all my American idealism, I walk in, a huge bowl of spaghetti bolognese comes flying down the hallway at me which I dodge, and the plate breaks against the wall, and spaghetti goes everywhere. Welcome to England. (laughs) Obviously, because I'm an athlete, my reaction time was very short, so I moved over to the side, but uh, what I had walked into was a huge fight between two people in the house who had been dating and were now in an emotional uh, uh, just spiral where they were fighting each other, and they were causing chaos. So Lana and Oliver were just going at it, throwing dishes and spaghetti and and breaking each other's things and screaming. So obviously I did the only brave thing that I could do. I quietly walked back down the stairs and out of the house. (laughs) It was the only option I had. So Uh, But eventually I moved in and I realized what was going on and there were some really complex dynamics and it wasn't healthy and it wasn't good and ultimately they ended up just kind of staying away from each other. But I lived for six months in this house with these people that hated each other. It was very strange. Um, We all got along really well except for the two of them. But the rule in the house was if they were going to cross paths there always needed to be a third person to kind of keep the peace. We were obviously living in a house divided. I mean, it couldn't have been more symmetrical. One hallway led to the end, I think it was three or four bedrooms on each side, and a kitchen somewhere in there, and a couple of bathrooms. But everyone knew that on one side Oliver lived, and on one side Lana lived, and that this was a house divided. Those two people could never be in the same room together, or there would be plates of spaghetti bolognese thrown. 
and people uh, would be collateral damage in the way of this battle. This was a house divided, and uh, the phrase a house divided uh, was made very famous in American political history by the President Abraham Lincoln, who gave a speech in the 1850s about uh, the relationship between the southern states in America, which supported uh, the keeping of slaves, and the northern states, which wanted to abolish the slaves. And he used this uh, phrase in a speech that became very famous before he ever became president. He said that uh, he reminded America that our house, if it is divided, will not stand. The nation that cannot live with a common uh, belief about this issue of slavery will crumble. But Abraham Lincoln actually got that phrase from Jesus. Because, see, Jesus was traveling all around, and he was performing miracles, and he was casting out demons. And one of the Pharisees or the scribes of the day said, the only reason Jesus can cast out demons is because he's the prince of the demons. He's the king of the demons, and that's why he can cast them out. Basically, they were calling Jesus Satan. And listen to what Jesus said in response to this. Beautiful words. He said, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. So, in the case of slavery in the United States, and in the case of Jesus' example of Satan fighting against himself, the same truth can be found in both. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, in your bulletins, today's sermon is called The Fall of Israel. And that is because I forgot to email Anne and tell her to change it to a house divided. But what I've decided was we're just going to stick a colon in there and we're going to call it a house divided against itself, colon, the fall of Israel. Because today we're going to look at how the southern king, I'm sorry, the kingdom of Israel in the time of the kings went from being uh, a kingdom, a sovereign nation that eventually was exiled and taken over by foreign powers. And we're going to look at why did that happen, who was one of the key uh, characters in this time period, the king named Jehu, my favorite king name in the Bible, King Jehu. And also we're going to look at what could this possibly mean for us today, because we don't have a king, uh, we don't, most of us don't come from countries with kings, and, and, and what does this mean for us anyway, this old story from the Old Testament. But I'm going to assert one idea, and that's this that all of us have some desires or some issue in our heart today that causes us to be a divided house. You know, in the Bible, our bodies are called the temple of the living God. The temple is the house of God. Therefore, if we are a kind of house, if there's any division in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, then there's the potential for all of us, like the kings of Israel, to fall. So that is what we're going to look at today. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would uh, be in this place with us today, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts from your word, that we would be encouraged by your love and peace and grace, but we would also take heed from the mistakes made by those who did not follow you with all of their heart, whose hearts were divided and therefore who fell. We ask that you would be with us today. Amen. Um, I'm going to jump around in the scripture today, so it might be difficult for you to uh, follow, but if you have your Bibles and you'd like to open to 2 Kings, I will point you to some specific chapters. Um, but specifically today, we're going to look at how the uh, Is Israelites 
in the kingdom of Israel were handed over to the Assyrians. So this is essentially the end of the age of the kings. A few weeks ago, I preached about David, and David represents the golden age of the king, uh, kingdom of Israel. This is the very end. This is the crumbling. This is the last days of the kings. So we're going to look at uh, Israel's patterns, and then we're also going to look, like I said, at the life of King Jehu, who had a very exciting and promising first half to his reign and a much more forgettable second half. Now, as we move ahead in today's sermon, I ask that you would keep this in the forefront of your mind. Let's go back in time and look at, um, just in your mind, remember the Ten Commandments, the founding principle of uh, Jesus, or sorry, of the, of the law of the Hebrew people. This was, the, this was their mission statement. If they were a corporation, this would have been uh, printed in bold letters on their masthead and on their front of their buildings and everywhere they went. The first commandment said this, Hear, O Israel, that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Rule number one, the mission statement that God gave to the the people after they left Israel, don't have any other gods. I am your God. Stick with me, okay? And you could argue that all the other commandments in the Ten Commandments and all the rest of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all the other detailed laws support that one major law, right? Same thing in a business. Those of you that work in corporations or own your own business, your mission statement guides everything that you do, right? If you say we offer this product at this uh, reasonable price to these customers, then everything you make a decision in your business should support that mission statement. The mission statement of these people was to love the Lord their God above all else. No other foreign gods. So keep that in, the, in your mind as we look at some of the mistakes that they make. When we pick up in 2 Kings, uh, Israel is divided. Uh, and it's divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, Now, during the time of Solomon, the people had turned away from God, and uh, ultimately this had led to the split of the kingdom. Uh, And a a few notes about the two kingdoms. The southern kingdom, Judah, was smaller. It had a a less powerful army. It had less fertile land to grow produce, but it was the spiritual capital of Israel. And during the reigns of the kings, there were 12 kings in Judah. Now, Israel was the northern kingdom. It was larger. It had better land, a better army. Most of the prophets were from there, as well as a a more powerful uh, military and better technology. Now, the problem with the northern kingdom was that was also the more idolatrous kingdom. They had 19 kings, and the Bible tells us that none of them, uh, for the most part, were very good. They just weren't... uh, committed to this idea that God was their ultimate leader. And there was all kinds of fighting, and you can read the book of, of 2 Kings and just your, draw, your jaw will drop because it sounds like they took the plot of every single um, uh, medieval story and every other story of palace intrigue and every single uh, romantic uh, 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 drama, and they just smashed it all together, and that came, that's the book of 2 Kings. 
And they were just miserable at this whole thing of, of honoring God and having an earthly king and sticking with his commandments. They just weren't good at it. Um, also during this time, it's important to know that all the surrounding people were trying to take Israel's land back. They wanted that land. So there was internal turmoil, and there was also external forces, which would make you and I think, as we look back in retrospective, who better to turn to in a time of this kind of uh, distress than the God who brought them out of, king, uh, out of Egypt. But that's not what they do. The pattern all through the books of First and Second Kings is this. Israel lets idols into their culture. Then there's destruction because of the idols. The, the kings murder each other or God removes them. They come to a low place, at which point a prophet speaks the truth. And for a time, there is some sort of restoration. The people are back on God's side. They're doing the right thing. And then ultimately, the idols come in. And then there's destruction. And then slight restoration. And then the idols come in. And then there's destruction. And then over and over and over. And this is the story of First and Second Kings. The Bible calls the people of Israel, that says that they were like heifers, that they were stubborn. But I also appreciate the analogy that comes from the book of Hosea. If you've studied the book of Hosea, you know it's a very dramatic and romantic uh, book because it's a story of the prophet Hosea, who is a godly man, and God tells him to marry a prostitute. And Hosea thinks, what? And God says, no, go and marry her, redeem her, and make her your own, even though she's going to run astray. And the reason God does this is because he's trying to demonstrate for Hosea exactly what Israel is doing to God. In this analogy, God is the bridegroom, Israel is the bride, and time and time again, Israel is going after idols. Listen to what Hosea records. In Israel, there is a spirit of prostitution. It has led them astray, and they, have left the, and they have left God to be a prostitute. They sacrifice on top of mountains, and they burn offerings in the hills, under oaks and poplars, and the terebinth tree, because the shade is good. Therefore, your daughters are like prostitutes, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish them while they play the prostitute, nor your brides while they commit adultery, for the men themselves go along with the prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and the people without understanding shall ultimately come to ruin. It's really strong language. It's shocking. God is saying the people of Israel are prostituting themselves to the gods uh, Baal and these foreign gods. And Hosea records this. Luckily, God gives Hosea a little bit of hope. So we're going to bring the tone back up a little bit. God says this to Hosea when he talks about his own wife, Hosea's wife. He says, go and love a woman that is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince. So he's, he's telling Hosea, there's a day coming when there won't be a king. They will dwell without sacrifice or pillar, without household gods, and afterward the children of Israel shall one day return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come to fear the Lord and his godliness in the latter days. So God is telling Hosea, this is not going to continue. This, this uh, worship of Baal and these other foreign gods is going to end, but someday the people of Israel will return. 
So we see that pattern in Israel, and we see how serious it is to God that he, he's not willing to let his people, who he rescued and made covenants with, go and, and make themselves servants of these other gods. He won't let that happen. In the eyes of God, idolatry is the same as unfaithfulness, the sharing of our worship and love outside the statutes of God and his commands is the same as breaking a vow, a promise of faithfulness to God like a, like a, a husband and a wife. That's how serious it is to God. Now, I told you we we're going to zoom in on one of these kings that was unfaithful. And I, I chose Jehu because there's a lot more information about him than some of the other kings. And also, he lived a very interesting life. I think it's almost cinematic. You could see this being directed by Ridley Scott. It's like the sequel to, um, you know, uh, um, Gladiator, right? This guy had a very interesting life. Jehu was the commander of uh, the army. And one day, um, the prophet sends a messenger to him and says, you are about to become the king. And God wants you to go, and he wants you to destroy the evil family that is ruling today. Now, the evil family that needed to be destroyed was the family of Jezebel. You're probably familiar with Jezebel, but she brought idolatry and idol worship and evil practices into the family and the house of God and corrupted many people. Uh, and also, her family was notoriously uh, just, uh, just evil. And double, uh, they had double faces. They were definitely a house divided because they lived in the culture and the time of the Hebrew kings, and yet their hearts were given to these foreign gods. It was a dichotomy that was ultimately destructive, and God tells Jehu, go and put an end to this idolatry. So Jehu is meant to clean house as it was. So the prophet says this, you are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants and the prophets and the blood of the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. That was the king. And I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. As for Jezebel, the dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. It's violent. It's brutal. It shows us a little bit how strongly God feels against people and, and nations who let idolatry in. It's scary in a way. So Jehu tells his soldiers what's going to happen. He says, God has anointed me king. I have to go and destroy the evil king and queen and their family. So uh, he does that. And he does it quickly and impressively. And he does it uh, with uh, zeal. And it says that the Lord was pleased with Jehu that he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He did half of what he was supposed to do because what we see is that after Jehu uh, cleans house and removes the evil people from the kingdom, he falls right back into the pattern of the kings that came before him. His destruction of Baal worship is partial. My understanding of this from the commentaries that I read was that there would have been a lot of internal political strife that even though Jehu had asserted himself as king, many of his advisors, many of the other leaders of the different tribes and the different regions in the kingdom, they would have had loyalties to Baal while simultaneously controlling financial, agricultural, and military uh, holdings. 
So for uh, Jehu to come in and completely wipe out the idolatry would have been uh, difficult, yes, but it also would have been politically very, very uh, challenging for Jehu. So my understanding is that he did what God said to a point, but he allowed that remnant, that scrap of unholiness, that element that had been poisoning the waters of Israel's spiritual relationship with God for generations, he allowed it to continue. Now, if you've been with us uh, through the whole Covenant People series, you know that for months and months back, this has been a pattern not just during the time of the kings, but also the judges, and back even to the time of Moses in the wilderness when, they were bringing, when Moses was bringing down the Ten Commandments. What did he find when he came down? Idol worship. There's something in the story of Israel, and I would also suggest in our own story, that lets idols in. There's something about us that is very much, uh, in, in English there's this phrase called hedging our bets. It means we're, gonna, we're, going, to, we're gonna go towards one goal, but we're also gonna have a safety net. And for some reason, there's something in our human experience where no matter how zealous we are for righteousness or how committed we are to our church or how intimate we are growing in our relationship with the Lord, there's a part of us that always leans towards foreign gods. Now, I'm not talking about a foreign god from, from Asia or, or, or from South America or, or from a, a, a specific foreign country. I'm talking about a god, any god other than Yahweh, the god, uh, the creator god. There's something in us that pulls us aside. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would all be nodding our head and saying amen right now. Because you know this feeling. It's the same feeling that, that confuses us when we're reading the Bible and we're studying God's word and then we walk out the door of our house and we do something impulsive and sinful. And it's, 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 almost, it's almost impossible to understand how can we do that. But that's part of what our human uh, uh, nature is. It shows us, reflects back to us the true nature of our own sin. It's difficult. We don't want to be thought of as sinners even when we're uh, at church on Sundays and, and even when we're giving to the church and we're involved in ministry and we're you know, leading devotionals or Bible studies, but there's always a part of our nature that draws us, pulls us away from God to something else. And Jehu felt the same thing. Ultimately, uh, Jehu is a, a tragic character. He, he reigns for 28 years. Most of his reign is forgettable. His armies are defeated, the borders shrink and close in on himself, and ultimately Jehu fades out from the narrative of the Bible, and all it says at the end of his life is that he died and was buried with his fathers. But there's one verse at the end of Jehu's life that I want to share with you. It says this, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your son's to the fourth generation, will sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, that was the king that brought idolatry into the kingdom, which made Israel to sin. And in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. So, Jehu did well in the beginning of his life, but he didn't give his whole heart to God. And because of that, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Now, his two errors, not being careful to walk in the law of the Lord and not turning from the sins of Jeroboam. 
The end of the story of kings, uh, Jehu wasn't the last king. There were several other kings after him before Israel falls. But the end of Israel is like this, from 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 11 through 15. I'm paraphrasing here if you're reading along. This is how the kingdom ends. The king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And they did wicked things, and they provoked the Lord to anger, and they served idols, to which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I have commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by the servants, my prophets. But Israel would not listen. They were stubborn, as their fathers had been, and they did not believe in the Lord. They despised his statutes and his covenants, and they went after idols, and they became false. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. And the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam had done, and they did not depart from the sins until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had done, as he had spoken by all of his servants, the prophets, as he had told them that he was going to do, so that Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day, the time of the writing. Remember when they entered the promised land with Joshua. Remember the beautiful fruit that Joshua and the spies brought back. Remember how long they had waited to go into their land, the promised land, the land of milk and honey that they had longed for for generations and generations and generations. And here they are being dragged away by this king who takes over the lands and they become slaves again. They were slaves in Egypt and now they're slaves again. There's a small verse in the Second Kings that's very ironic about uh, the other kingdom, Judah. Towards the end of Judah's reign, they began to rely on Egypt for help to fight off their enemies. Think of the irony of that. The people who had once been slaves to Egypt were now dependent on Egypt to keep them from falling into slavery again. Well, finally, we look at these stories from the Old Testament, and sometimes, it's, frankly, it's difficult to connect them to our lives. What does this have to do with my bank accounts and my to-do list at home when I go back from church and my kids' school? And it's difficult sometimes to connect these passages from the Old Testament and the names of these kings that are difficult to pronounce, but I would say this, not to oversimplify or minimize the difficult reality of trying to live in the world today, but I would say that giving our entire heart to God is the single most difficult thing anyone can strive to do. Let me say that again. Striving to give your whole self to the God of the Bible, to devote yourself to Him, is the single most difficult thing you will ever do in your life. And it's not something that happens when you become a Christian. That's part of it, yes. That's the, the moment where you say, I am going to begin this journey of striving towards holiness uh, and, and walking with God. But the actual battlefield of giving ourselves to God happens every day, doesn't it? It happens in the morning when you wake up. C.S. Lewis once said, the first job every single day, the first job, is to push back the torrent of things that are fighting for my attention when I wake up. The first thing that he does, or he, he said, the first goal every morning is to push back the cares of the world and to focus on God as his first thought of the day. How true is that? I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, my to-do list is already building. 
There's so many emails and there's so many phone calls and there's so many people to follow up with and ultimately, uh, you know, there's some, something I've got to do and I've got to do it right away. It's very difficult to push back, but remember the words of Jesus. Actually, these aren't the words of Jesus. These are the words of a faithful uh, Hebrew from the time who said to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit heaven, right? The eternal life. And Jesus says, what does the law say? And then the young man says this. He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with your strength and all your mind and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, do that and you will live. So what the kings of Israel were not able to do, Jesus is confirming to this young man that, yes, this is in fact the thing that all of us must do if we want to live. And why does Jesus say that if we do this, we will live? Why does he, because obviously the young man's already alive, why does he say live? And I think what he's saying here, the implication is that he's not talking just about life, he's talking about abundant life. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come so that you can have life to the full. Some translations say abundant life. The best version of life that is possible on earth is this thing called abundant life. Jesus says, the only way to really access that abundant life is through me, through Jesus, in route to striving for holiness. It doesn't mean that by being perfect or sinless, you get to have abundant life. It means that through trusting Christ, who is our only path to salvation, we have access to this thing called abundant life. The door is opened. And when the door is opened, each day we have to decide, am I going to walk through that door? Or am I going to hang out in the lobby with some of these old idols that I used to have from my teenage years or from my university days or from the days when I was single or from the days when I was and so on and so on. Jesus says, you will live when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. When your house is undivided, undivided, that would seem to be the key to experiencing the abundant life. So I will close with these two questions for you. What can we take from the life of Jehu and the kings as we strive to experience this uh, love of God that is complete and not uh, divided? Well, I think there's two things we can do, and we learn these from the mistakes of Jehu. One, if we are careful to walk in the law of the Lord, we will experience abundant life. It says that the people of Israel forgot the law. They forgot the law. They didn't uh, remember the statutes, and so they strayed. If Jehu had been more careful in his walk, perhaps his reign would have been longer and better and more memorable and known as being a reign of righteousness. I ask you that you test yourself. What if you walked through the Ten Commandments in your mind? Which ones are your blind spots? Which ones do you say, well... I'm so good at eight of the ten. I'm so good at eight of the ten. That's a great average. But there's two that more or less I try, but I don't always succeed at. I think what we can do is start there. Start this uh, process. Write them down if you have to, or just open a Bible uh, or, or, or look online. The Ten Commandments. Which ones 
are your blind spots? Where is there a crack in the statutes of God where maybe, maybe seven or nine out of ten you're very good at, but when it comes to uh, stealing or, or lying, in, in whatever form it is in your life, is it difficult? So, number one, be careful in your walk with the Lord. Be intentional in it. It's challenging to me. Um, I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 6, where Moses tells the people of Israel something really challenging. He says, You shall teach the law of the Lord to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the road, on the, on the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. We teach our parents this. Uh, what Moses is saying is that there's four basic times when the law of God should be on your heart. When you rise up in the morning, breakfast, on the way to school, on the way to work. When you're on the road, when you're traveling or in the train or on the bus or in the car. And even if you're not a parent, these are places where the law of the Lord could be on your heart. What about when you lie down, when you go to sleep? What about when you sit in your house? Four different places when the law of the Lord should be meditate you should be meditating on that and lastly if we walk carefully with the lord secondly if we turn away from sin remember jehu not only didn't carefully walk with the lord but he actually didn't turn away from the sins of the past kings he allowed those sins to continue and so my question for you is what small sin what small sin in your own heart or in your family or in your house is creating a division in your heart What small thing is poisoning the well of your well-being? And I tell the kids a lot in uh, Sunday school, if you take a white bucket of paint, a huge bucket of white paint, this is Danish white, I mean it is pure white, and you take one eyedropper of, of black and you drop it in to that white paint, it doesn't matter how many times you add more paint to that white, it will never be the same white as it once was. And we're lucky that we have Christ who intercedes on our behalf and makes us whiter than we ever were before. But that sin, if it's left to sit and dwell in our hearts, it creates problems in our relationships, as, as many of you will know, but it also creates this division in our hearts. And this is very convicting to me because the key to overcoming this is confession. Confession to the Lord at first, and if and to your spouse, and to your children, or to your parents, or whoever it is, but confession paves the way for true repentance. We can be sorry and sad about something and feel regret and shame about it, but if I do nothing to stop myself from committing those same sins again, I'm essentially doing what Jehu did. I'm leaving the sin in my house to once again divide me. Watch carefully how we walk with the Lord and turn away from sin. We have to examine our divided hearts each day. It's an active part of discipleship. The challenge every day is to not grow tired and not grow complacent. I imagine it was difficult to be a king and spiritually motivating yourself because you're the king, right? You're in charge. You're the man. You are the ultimate authority. But I think we can see in the downfall of Israel that time and time again, the kings were not the ultimate authority. 
that ultimately the kings of men will all bow down before the king of kings. Think about that. I, I, I know that there are places in my life where I can be more careful in my walk with the Lord. And I know that there are places in my life where sin is hiding in the corners. But remember what the writer of Hebrews said. He said that Christ intercedes on our behalf. He said this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive and find grace to help us in times of need. We're about to take communion. And I would challenge you today that for the next minute, while the guys that are going to help me come up, here's my challenge to you. Where is your heart divided? Examine your heart the next few moments. Confess to the Lord the things that you feel that you know are creating division and keeping you from loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your strength and your soul. Examine those things and pray before you take communion today. Pray for forgiveness and for a chance to turn away from those sins and walk carefully with God. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.